0: reading from the Gospel of John uh, begins in chapter 7, uh, verse 37. I'm going to run through chapter 8, verse 1. John seven thirty-seven through 8, 1. Hear the word of the Lord. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us this morning in this room and in our hearts. We pray that you would give us strength to be your people. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is that you would have us know. I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch my flesh this morning so that the words that I proclaim are the ones that need to be heard. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As hard as it is to believe, there actually is something better than hanging out with Jesus. Something better than hearing Jesus preach and teach. Something better than eating and drinking with Jesus. Something better than having Jesus nearby to heal your sicknesses or share your sorrows. As hard as it is to believe, there is something better than hanging out with Jesus. And I know that's so because that's what Jesus says. In John sixteen seven, we hear Jesus tell his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away. Hard to imagine, isn't it? It is to our advantage to not have Jesus with us. It is to our advantage to have Jesus go away. And it's to our advantage, Jesus explains, to have him go away because when he goes away, the Father will send us his Holy Spirit. While Jesus stood next to us and walked with us and showed us the path that leads to life, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us the power to actually follow that path. In the Old Testament, God gave His law at Mount Sinai. It was to be a life-giving guide to His people. As David writes in Psalm 119, Your word is a light to my Feet and a lamp to my path, it's a tremendous blessing. But in Ezekiel 36, 27, God promises something even better. He says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a tremendous blessing. But in John 16, 13, Jesus promises something even better. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. The law shows us the way. Jesus is the way. But the Holy Spirit guides us in that way and causes us to walk in that way. If you're anything like me, You've had the experience of knowing the right way to go. Of knowing the right thing to do, but not actually doing it. Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. The rest of you, we need to talk. And in case you haven't noticed, it's doing the right thing, not just knowing the right thing, which counts. I may know that a healthy diet and regular exercise will help me lose weight, but until I actually do those things, I won't lose weight. Trust me, I've experienced this problem. The Holy Spirit living inside of us helps us live the way that we know we should live. The Holy Spirit living inside of us helps us walk in the way that Jesus showed us. The Holy Spirit living inside of us gives us the power to actually live lives full of God's light and grace and truth and favor. As precious as the law is, as lovely as Jesus is, having the Holy Spirit inside of us is Even better. In our reading this morning from John chapter 7, we get our very first hint about the Holy Spirit in this gospel, who will soon appear to the surprise of everyone, falling on the church, which will then be, they will be filled with this extraordinary power, power that makes the church explode out of Jerusalem like a tidal wave that quickly covers the whole earth. Jesus in John 7 verses 37 and 38 says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us what Jesus means. John writes, He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now here glorified means that he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Let me give you a little historical context. All of the events in John chapter 7 take place during the, the uh, Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths celebrates God providing for his people during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after their exodus out of Egypt. For 400 years, the Israelites lived in Egypt. They were slaves there, but they lived in a very rich and well-watered country. People did not starve to death in Egypt. In fact, during times of famine, people from other countries would uh, travel into Egypt because they always had food and they always had water to spare. But then the Israelites leave Egypt and they go into the Sinai Desert, a desolate and waterless waste, and there are no crops to harvest. There's no grass for the animals to graze on. So God fed his people with manna that comes out of the sky every day and water was scarce so God miraculously provided water for the people in the most unlikely places. Earlier in the service Sam read for us the passage from Numbers chapter 20 where we see Moses strike the rock at Meribah and life-giving water comes gushing out. The feast of booze was all about remembering God's amazing provision for these wandering refugees in unbelievably difficult circumstances. Our passage from John 7 this morning is from the last day of this festival. And on this last and great day of the festival, Jesus stands up in the midst of the people and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It is not accidental that Jesus talks about thirst and about rivers of living water at the Feast of Booths because God's provision of water is a central theme of the festival. Here's how the scholar R. Kent Hughes describes one of the central features of the festival. Quote, Each morning the people gathered together, and after the priest was sure everything was in order, he would hold out a golden pitcher. The crowds would then follow the priest to the pool of Siloam, chanting some of the great psalms and waving their palm branches in rhythm. As they approached the pool of Siloam the priest would dip his pitcher into the water and the people would recite the beautiful words from Isaiah 12:3 with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation Then the crowd would march back to the temple entering through the water gate to the blast of the trumpets of the priest trumpets the priest would then circle the altar once ascend with accompanying priests to the platform and pour the water out. This was a daily event. End quote. At Maribah, the people were dying of thirst and God brings them gushing streams of water out of a rock. And at the pinnacle of this festival, remembering that miracle, Jesus stands up in the congregation and he declares, if you're thirsty, come to me. Believe in me and living water is going to gush out of your heart. Spiritual thirst is a serious business. We are not just flesh and blood. We're not only physical matter. We are not organic robots. We are spiritual creatures too. That's why we long for justice and beauty. That's why we're not satisfied without goodness and decency and purpose and respect and honor and kindness. We are not machines. We are living spirits created by a living spirit in the very image of that living spirit. Yes, we have bodies too. And those bodies have needs. Our bodies get thirsty from time to time. But our spiritual thirst is just as real as any physical thirst. And it is much closer to the essential heart of who we are as people. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You'll recall that Jesus hinted at this very same thing with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's out at the well in the middle of the day because she's an outcast. And she's drawing water from this well. It happens to be the very well that Jacob had dug centuries before. She's drawing water from the village well to meet her daily needs. Washing and cooking and drinking. But Jesus offers her something better. Something better than what the deep well of Jacob can offer. Here's what Jesus says in John four thirteen and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God gave life-giving water to the children of Israel in the desert at Meribah. A wonderful miracle, one that continues to be celebrated every year by Jews around the world. And in John chapter 7, we see Jesus picking up this image of streams of water gushing out in the desert to describe what happens when people come to Him. Their spiritual thirst quenched. Rivers of living water come gushing out of the most unlikely stony place. And John in chapter 7 verse 39 tells us that what Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. The living water welling up inside of the people who believe in Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit goes by a number of names in the New Testament... He's called the Comforter, the Counselor, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Life, the Intercessor, the Author of Scripture, the Guide, the Convictor of Sin, and the Seal of Our Salvation. There's a whole lot wrapped up in the Holy Spirit, and here in John chapter 7, Jesus offers just the first hints of what's to come. In John chapter 16, Jesus will have a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit and about the work of the Holy Spirit. But it really isn't until the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of the early church after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, after his glorification, that we see the Holy Spirit poured out in a remarkable way upon the church on the day of Pentecost, that we see the Holy Spirit indwell Christians and give them remarkable power and courage to be the church. In a hostile and dark world. Those of you who are theological wonks. We have a few of them here. You know who you are. Those of you who are theological wonks know that the branch of theology devoted to the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. That comes from the Greek word for spirit which is pneuma which is the Greek word for breath or wind. It's the same Greek word which gives us the uh, English word pneumatic. As Christians, we profess faith in a triune God, one God who is known in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. All three persons of the Trinity are uncreated, and all have been in relationship with each other always. And each person of the Trinity has a specific role within the Trinity and in relationship to creation. I'm not sure how a real pneumatologist, that's what people who study the Holy Spirit are called, I'm not sure how a real pneumatologist would put the matter, but I would describe the Holy Spirit as that person of the Holy Trinity who communicates the blessings of God to His creation. God, of course, is pure spirit, but his creation is this, this strange mixture of matter and spirit. And God interacts with his creation through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the pipeline between God and his creation. We see this in the very beginning in Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of creation. A little later, when God creates humans, he forms them out of pure matter, like organic robots just out of the stuff of the ground. But then he breathes his breath into them, his Holy Spirit, and they become living beings. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit anoint prophets to speak the word of God, priests to intercede on behalf of the people, and kings to lead Israel against the enemies of God. For the most part, it seems that the Holy Spirit came upon these people Just for limited periods of time, the Holy Spirit would come upon a prophet and he would have some vision and then the Holy Spirit would leave and the prophet would write down what he had seen. But King David talks about the Holy Spirit as more of an abiding presence, as we see in David's prayer in Psalm 55, where he begs God. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That sounds like David was accustomed to having the Holy Spirit with him all or at least most of the time. While in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit anoints individuals, which was represented sacramentally by pouring oil on the heads of these individuals, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells individuals. When the Holy Spirit anoints a prophet, priest, or king, it's as if God's Spirit is poured onto the individual the way oil is poured onto their heads in the anointing ceremony. But when the Holy Spirit indwells the individual, which is something promised to each and every person who belongs to Christ, the Holy Spirit is like a spring of water welling up on the inside of the individual. In our passage this morning, John says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. The great outpouring that Jesus was looking forward to happened 50 days after his resurrection on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell in a powerful way upon the believers. We live downstream from Pentecost. Every Christian is Pentecostal because every person who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Each one of us has Pentecostal power. Out of our heart flows rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit is not just something that falls on us or anoints us. It is something inside of us and intimately connected with who we are and what we are becoming as new creations in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, Do you not know that you are a living temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Each and every person who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. So what does all of this pneumatology mean for us? And what do we need to do about it? First, let me say very clearly that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. We have no faith, no saving faith, if the Holy Spirit did not create that faith in us. The Bible tells us that before we came to Christ in faith, we were spiritually dead. And in case you haven't noticed... Dead people don't do anything. They don't move. They don't act. They don't have faith if they're dead. They just sit there and rot. And so if we have faith in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit breathed new life into us first. The theological term for that is regeneration. We were dead, but then we were regenerated. We were made alive in the Holy Spirit. And once we're alive, then we can have faith in Christ. So let me assure you that if you have faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an extra, it's not an add-on to the Christian life. There simply is no Christian life without the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Second, let me say that every benefit that comes from belonging to Christ is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this pipeline between God and His creation. The list of benefits that we have from belonging in Christ is, it's enormous. I guess it's endless. We could never get to the end of the list of His benefits. One of the lists that you do know is the list of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a well of living water and so things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control come welling up, bubbling up inside of us because of the presence of the Spirit. Don't make the mistake of thinking that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are virtues that we produce by an exercise of our will. We don't get these things by working harder. If you feel like there is not enough patience and gentleness and self-control in your life, don't say to yourself, oh, you know, I better get on the ball and try harder. I better get a tighter grip on myself so that I can be more gentle. I better get up earlier in the morning so that I can be more patient. I better get a coach so that I can have more self-control. The Bible calls these things fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't call these things fruit of our labor. Do you understand? Don't make yourself crazy by trying to work harder to be peaceful. Don't tell someone that they need to get to work and be more loving. These are not the product of our labor or our will. They are the fruit of the Spirit. And they will come welling up inside of us by themselves like gushing springs of living water if we will just get out of the way and let them. Two quick words of warning and then a closing word of encouragement. First, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4.20, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Paul explains that in the next two verses where he writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It grieves the heart of God when we are bitter and angry, when we are malicious or when we slander one another. And it brings joy to the heart of God when we are kind and tender hearted and when we forgive others the way God has already forgiven us. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And second, do not quench the holy spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5:19 through 22, Paul writes, "Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil." Here Paul pictures the holy spirit as a kind of flame, a candle That can be snuffed out or or quenched. We quench the Spirit when we despise prophecy. And by prophecy, we understand God's Word proclaimed in Scripture and in preaching. We quench the Holy Spirit when we don't want to hear from God. When we don't want to know what God is saying to us. Paul warns the church to test everything by which he means to test every doctrine to be sure that it is what God has revealed in His Word. And finally, he tells us to abstain from every form of evil, big evils and little evils, because when we dabble in evil, our hearts become hard to the things of God. So do not quench the Holy Spirit. One final thing before we close. There is no end to the list of benefits that we have when we are united with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit but the benefit that's nearest and dearest to my heart is adoption. Paul tells the church in Romans 8:15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, "Abba, Father." In Christ, we are no longer orphans. In Christ we receive a spirit of adoption and God is truly our Father and we can cry out, Abba, Father. Do you know God as your Father? As a parent who knows you and loves you and protects you and provides for you and is delighted with you? Or does God seem threatening And remote. I invite you this morning. To place your whole faith and trust. In Jesus. The son of God. So that you might receive a spirit of adoption. And experience the peace. And the comfort that comes from knowing. That the maker of heaven and earth. Is also the father who loves you. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the God's honest truth. And it's the gospel for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we marvel at you and we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here in this room. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you that you have made us alive again, that you've resuscitated us. Lord God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would grow up our faith and Help us cling to Christ ever more dearly. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would hear the voice of Christ ever more clearly. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would guide us in those paths that Jesus laid out for us to walk. Come Holy Spirit and fill us up. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.